I was, I was just about to sing, and then they cut the music. Oh, man. Maybe next time. Maybe next time. Come on, man. Next time. Next time. I said next time. Next time. Next time. Next time. I said next time. Next time. Good morning, Sanctuary. Y'all doing all right? Oh, man. Y'all are wild people. Wild people. Can we give a round of applause to our worship team and our band? Um, to our folks from sound in the back who make us sound a lot better than we actually sound. We, we are so excited to be in worship with you today. Again, my name is Edrin, lead pastor here at the Sanctuary, um, and I'm excited to have the chance to share with you um, this word this morning. We're beginning a new series that we're calling Road Trip. Road Trip. Um, and for us, it is an opportunity. Um, this summer, we've been... Um, trying to connect on some more lighthearted topics, but uh, to use the things that we know and are very comfortable with to talk about the things that we know God is calling us to. And so today we're actually going to jump into a series about discipleship, but we're talking about road trips at the very same time. And so let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into this word. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to go ahead and turn it to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 18. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time and space to be together, for everything that we have experienced so far, for all of your people that you've gathered here on this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would bless now and be with us in ways that we can sense and feel. Continue to help us to to just encounter you and experience your love. Uh, May this word be an encouragement to our body, a blessing to our brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to begin with the confession with an acknowledgement that I absolutely love road trips. I love road trips. I I believe few things signal that summer is here like a good road trip. Road trips have become, for me, one of my favorite, if not my favorite, way to travel. I don't get to do it as often as I would like to, but road trips are my favorite way to travel. I probably travel more often by airplane than via road trip, but airplanes aren't built for me. <laughs> I, in fact, I don't know if they're built for any of us. <laughs> Once you get past five foot four and 130 pounds, um, that bathroom is a no-go. Like, like, who is that actually for? And then the water, they give you about three and a half ounces of water at a time, They give you a bag of peanuts, a a bag of peanuts. They're actually about 7 to 13 peanuts in the bag. Some of you are looking at me like, ooh, pastor, you traveling coach. (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) How is it back there? (laughs) Listen, if you feel called to the pastor upgrade your ticket ministry, um, (laughs) send me an email this week and we can work something out. (sighs) But I digress. Road trips, road trips. Talk about road trips. Road trips are awesome, and and I love them for a number of reasons. I love them because when you take a road trip, in most cases, your friends and your loved ones are there. When you take road trips, you you get the opportunity to get out of the city. You get to be out on the open road. You get to see nature in all of its splendor, and you even get to see small-town America. 
I love the city. I've called it home for about 14, 15 years now, but at heart, I am a small town kid, and I love the opportunity to check out small town America. I love road trips because of gas station snacks. Anybody love sunflower seeds? Anybody love Mike and Ike's, Cheetos, beef jerky, Cheez-Its? And if you're in a part of the country that God really loves, you get ball peanuts right there at the gas station. Any, anybody know about that? God hasn't blessed you all with that yet? We'll talk about it. That's a ministry to come here at the sanctuary. I love road trips because of the rest area stops. I love the opportunity to, after being in the car for a long time, get out and to stretch and to let the kids run around and burn off some energy with the hope that they would take a nap right afterwards. I love road trips because of the playlist, the opportunity to curate good music that will help you to navigate the trip. I love audiobooks and I love podcasts for the road. I love road trips because of the deep conversations that you can have in it while you're there in the car. My wife Shanika and I have had many road trips over the years, and I remember one trip where we had to travel from South Carolina, from Minnesota to South Carolina, and we found what's called a talking can. It was just a can full of discussion starters, and we would, at various points in that trip, pull out a question, and, and we would begin to have conversation, and I remember us having hours of conversation thanks to this small, cheap talking can. I love road trips because of the deep conversations. I also love the games that you get to play on road trips, especially for the kids, but adults can partake of this as well. Have you ever played the license plate game where everybody gets assigned a state? And it can't be the one that you're in, but some other state. And every time you see a license plate with that state, you get a point. Have you ever played the color of the car game? I have the red cards, you have the blue car, and every time you see a red or blue car, somebody gets a point. As a parent, it can keep your kids busy for a really long time. I love road trips because of the shared adventure, the opportunity of seeing something really cool and knowing that my cell phone is not going to capture this moment, but being able to share that moment with somebody special is really important, and I love that road trips give us that opportunity. I, I don't know if there's any better way to travel than a road trip. But I love road trips for another reason as well. I love road trips because I believe they remind us a lot of the discipleship journey. Think about road trips. They're long. They often take place over extended periods of time. The destination matters, but so does the journey. You're not just trying to get there. You're actually very interested in what happens along the way. And they're transformative. You're a different person at the end of a road trip than you were at the start. And even if you can't see it in the moment, you're changed by the experience of a road trip. And I believe all the same things are true about this discipleship journey that we're called to. And so over the next several weeks, we as a teaching team are going to look at this wonderful phenomenon that we call road trips. And we're going to look at the many ways in which road trips point us towards discipleship, this call to follow after Jesus that we all receive. And so my goal today is simple, to simply lay a little foundation for where we're headed and then set the stage for the messages to come. And so if you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 18. The words will also appear on the screen, but we do encourage you to bring your Bible with you each Sunday. Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 18. As Jesus was walking... 
Beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net in the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their net and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in the boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Matthew Gospel has much to tell us about Jesus. Matthew, as you know, was a reformed tax collector. And so he likely would have been a very meticulous and organized record keeper. And so Matthew uses those skills of record keeping to help us see Jesus, both his life, his journey, and ministry. When we look at Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, we see Jesus as first a king. Matthew helps us to see right away in his book that Jesus was born into the line of King David. He was a king. He was the promised one, the one that would come for his people. Matthew urges us, because Jesus is king, that we should follow after him. Matthew also helps us to see Jesus as the prophet. Jesus was a prophet, a new Moses for us, who had come to deliver the people not with violence, not with soldiers, not with force, but with his word. Because Jesus is a prophet, Matthew implores us, he begs us to listen to the words of this man, Jesus. Jesus, the king, Jesus, the prophet, but also Jesus, the savior. We see that as well here in Matthew. Jesus was a savior. Matthew helps us to see that Jesus' very name testifies to the fact that he came to save his people from their sins. He did not lose his life. Matthew says Jesus laid down his life for the forgiveness of sins. Knowing this about Jesus, Matthew petitions us to go ahead and worship Jesus the Savior. And it's that same Jesus, that very Jesus that we see in our text today, walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee when he sees two sets of brothers and he says to them, come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. He sees Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. He sees James and John there with their father Zebedee. And he says to them, come and follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. Jesus chose these brothers, and this was abnormal. In Jewish culture, students often attached themselves to teachers. They chose the rabbi that they wanted to follow. But here Jesus breaks with tradition, and he calls these men to follow after him. Jesus does not wait for them to come. Jesus pursues them. They did not choose Jesus. Jesus chose them. And it reminds me very clearly of what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 6. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Jesus didn't leave it up to chance. And there's good news in that for us today to know that Jesus did not simply wait for us to get our minds right and come to him. Jesus chose us. And so if you are struggling today with your identity and wondering, are you loved or are you valued? I want you to know that Jesus chose you. Of all the people in the world, he chose you. 
He loves you. He knows you in an intimate and personal way. Jesus chose these brothers, and he said to them, come follow after me. Now, when he chose them and they chose to follow him, these brothers left some things behind. They were fishermen. And in that day, fishermen were above average earners. They made a a, a good living. Not only was it a good living, but they also knew that fishing was a family business. And so following Jesus meant walking away from their livelihoods, and it meant walking away from those they loved. It could be even seen as dishonoring your family to walk away from the business in this way. But yet these brothers left behind their father and what they knew of business and life, and they followed after Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is radical discipleship, to be called and to walk away from what you know best, what you are most comfortable with, to follow after Jesus. Jesus chose them, they left some stuff behind, and Jesus changed what they were doing from low to high. Jesus called them from lower fishing, from fishing to being fishers of men. He he moved them from being fishermen to being fishers of men. Think about the Old Testament. David was a shepherd boy, and God called him and moved him from being a shepherd of sheep to being a shepherd over all of God's people. In the very same way God calls these brothers from being fishermen to being fishers of men. He used what they knew, and he used the gifts that they had been practicing for so long to carry out the work of the kingdom. Here's what I want to remind you of this morning, that not every call that God gives us is a call to quit our jobs and come work at the church. God has given you a gift right where you are. God has allowed you to discover and to develop some gifts right where you are. And right where you are is where God needs you to be in this season. God is calling you not to quit your job and come work here. God is calling you to fish in the water that he's already planted you in. God is calling you right where you are in corporate America or in that school or in that law firm or driving a city bus. Whatever you do, wherever you are, there is a call that God has for you right there. And you can impact the world in ways that I never could. Something strange happens when I tell people I'm a pastor. Their voice literally changes when they find out I'm a pastor. And I'm always like, I'm a pastor, but not that kind of pastor. Like, be yourself. Take that beer out of the bushes. I don't care. (laughs) People get strange when they find out that you're a pastor. Brothers and sisters, there are some folks that I will not be able to reach. But you can. God has already allowed you to develop the relationships and the respect and put in the time. And now he's calling you to be a fisher of men and women. God calls us, come, follow me, I'll send you out to fish for people. He says, come, I'll prepare you, and I'll send you. Come, I'll prepare you, and I'll send you. I want to caution you that this is not linear. This is not, come, I will teach you everything you need to know, and then when you become a content expert, I will then send you out to be a fisher of men. Jesus says, come, follow me, 
I will teach you some things. I'll let you watch me do some things. I will send you out. You will experience some successes, but also some failures. And then you will be taught some more. And then you will go out and you will experience some more. You will have some more success. You will also get your butt kicked a little bit. But all along the way, you are learning what it means to be a fisher of men and women. And many of us in this room have not yet begun the work of disciple-making because we feel like there's more I need to learn. There are questions that I can't answer right now. There are things in my past that if someone brought up, I would be struggling to explain. Brothers and sisters, the call of discipleship is not a call to be a content expert. There will always be questions you can't answer. There will always be critics that you can't silence, including the critic inside of yourself. You'll never memorize enough scripture. You'll never quote enough. You'll never be able to drop enough Hebrew and Greek words. But even so, God is calling you today to come and follow after me, and I will make you fishers of people. What I know for sure is that you won't even know what you need to know until you go. That's bars. That rhymed, and I didn't even mean for it to rhyme. You won't know what you need to know until you go. So Jesus says, come, follow after me, and I will send you out to fish for people. Matthew teaches us that Jesus is the king. And in this passage, the king comes to these brothers and says, come on, hop in the car. Let's take a ride. Friends, this is the call to discipleship. Jesus is inviting us on a journey. Perhaps you might call it a road trip. Jesus is inviting us on a road trip. He's inviting us into a life of discipleship where we can learn of him, where we can experience him, where we can know him, where we can be transformed by him from the inside out. And even as God is transforming us from the inside out, he's calling us to also be busy inviting others onto the journey as well. You might be wondering, Pastor Edwin, do we really need another discipleship message? I know you love discipleship, Pastor Edron, but is this really a conversation we need to have? The answer is yes. In fact, it may be the only conversation we need to have because discipleship is the primary work of the church. There are a lot of things that churches do, but discipleship is the one thing that churches must do. If you are to call yourself a church, especially the Church of Jesus Christ, you must be involved in the work of making disciples. So if you ask the question, do we need another discipleship message? Yes. But there's a second reason we need a discipleship message in this discipleship series. One that's a bit more, more, more concerning for me is that this, the spirit of this age will have you feeling like you're following Jesus when you're really not. If we're not careful... This world will have us thinking we're following Jesus when we're really not. In the early 2000s, a researcher by the name of Christian Smith released a book called Soul Searching. 
He had researched thousands of teenagers from around the country about their faith beliefs. Some of them were, were, were Christians, some were Jewish, some were Muslim, some were Hindu, some had not established any faith at all, had not grown up in church. But he talked to them and interviewed them for hours and hours and hours about their faith and how they viewed faith. And he came up with a series of a, 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 a faith system that predominated the lives of teenagers in the early 2000s. If you were a teenager in 2000, that would make you uh, in your mid-30s right now. So I believe many of the, the folks that Smith interviewed in that series are now adults. And so what was true of youth ministry in the early 2000s is true of the church today. He penned a phrase to describe the faith of teenagers in that study. It was called moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. I want to take a moment and break that down because I want us to understand why it's important that we do the work of discipleship and not become lazy when it comes to our understanding of the faith. That word moralism and moralistic faith is, is about simply living a good and happy life and seeing that as the key to being a good and moral person. It means that being nice and kind and pleasant and respectful and working on self-improvement and taking care of one's health and doing one's best to be successful, that makes up the essence of faith. It says being moral in this faith means being the kind of person who, who others will like, fulfilling one's personal potential, not being socially disrupted, disruptive or interpersonally obnoxious. That's one side of being moralistic. On the other side, moralism is about sin management. It's, it's about keeping a score where one strives to simply do enough good deeds to outnumber the number of wrong deeds they do in their life. Does that sound familiar? It says as long as you do more good than bad, this belief system says you've lived a moral life. That's what moralism looks like. And I believe moralism has leaked its way into the church, and it will stay there until we're careful, if we're not careful. But there's something also called therapeutic culture. This is a culture about feeling good about oneself. There, there's no room in therapeutic culture for sin or repentance from sin. There's no space for keeping of Sabbath. There's no space for building character through suffering. In fact, suffering is something you run from at all costs. It's a culture where you spend yourself in gratitude, where there's no room for spending yourself in gratitude or loving social justice causes. Rather, what appears to be the dominant motivation for people in therapeutic culture is to be, be happy, to feel good, to be secure, or to be at peace. There's no room even for organized religion where people don't tell you what you want to hear. Amen. In therapeutic culture, self is at the center of this worldview. And that tells us, that suggests to us that self-actualization is actually the highest form of being whole and healthy. There's moralism, there's therapeutic culture, and then there's deism. And in this amorphous belief system, there is, there is room for a God, but only a particular kind of God. There's a God who exists out there somewhere, a God who created the world, 
who defines some squishy moral order, but not one who is particularly involved in our lives in any way, especially in those affairs where you'd rather not have God involved. Most of the time, this God is kept at a safe distance, but this God is not Trinitarian. He did not speak through the Torah or through the prophets. He was never resurrected from the dead, and he does not fill people, and he does not transform people through his spirit. This God is not demanding. He never puts any pressure on you at all. He actually can't be demanding because the highest order of this faith, again, is to feel good. In short, this God is something like a divine butler or a cosmic therapist. He's always on call. He takes care of problems when they arise, but then you get to shoo him away. He helps people to feel better about themselves, but he doesn't come too person, become too personally involved in other aspects of your life. I think about this as sort of like uh, Instacart spirituality. You know Instacart, right? You can go online or get the app and you can order your groceries, and they'll go to several stores on your behalf. And so you can get your veggies from Hy-Vee, and you can get your drinks from Cove, and they'll go to Whole Food and get your shea butter and all that kind of stuff. You get a few things from here, a few things from there, a few things from there, and they, put it, they bag it all together and bring it to you. You are at the center of the experience. Even though they may have hundreds of thousands of customers, they treat you as if you are the only one. And then they have excellent customer service, a few, few weeks ago, my wife ordered some eggs, uh, some, some, some white eggs, a dozen, and they gave us about four dozen of brown eggs. We were eating uh, omelets all over the place, like just omelets after omelets after omelets. But she just filled out the survey and said, I ordered white, and they gave me brown, and they gave us all the money back. They gave us more than we asked for, but they gave us all our money back because their customer service is what makes them special. But here's what I know for certain. What works great for online grocery shopping is awful when it comes to matters of faith. And discipleship tells us that there is a God and it's not any one of us. Some of us will be offended by that. You'll hear that and you'll be offended. What? <laughs> but other of us will hear that. And you'll be relieved because you're tired of pretending that you can hold it all together anyway. You're tired of pretending that you're the master of your fate and the captain of your soul. And the discipleship journey tells us beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is a God who's in control and it is not the person looking at you in the mirror. Moralistic, therapeutic deism threatens every church in America. But there is an alternative that is as old as the church is itself. That alternative is called discipleship. It's called discipleship. It's, it's that invitation that Jesus shared there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Come, follow after me, and I'll send you out to fish for people. Here, here's how discipleship responds to moralistic therapeutic deism. Discipleship calls us to first go beyond moralism to actually having our hearts shaped by God. Discipleship calls us to go beyond simply keeping some arbitrary lists of do's and don'ts. Discipleship calls us to go beyond simply doing good things. 
Discipleship is a daily coming to grips with the fact that what saves us and what will ultimately redeem all things is a grace that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Discipleship is a call to come and experience God's amazing grace. Discipleship is a call to have our hearts shaped by God. Discipleship reminds us that what shapes us and what drives our lives is not just what we think or what we believe, but what we love. We are shaped most effectively by what we love. So brothers and sisters, today I'm asking you, what do you actually love? One part of discipleship is helping us to fall more and more in love with Jesus and his church. To help us see Jesus moving higher and higher on the list of things that consume our lives. And as that happens, you're freed up from list keeping. You're you're, you're freed up from daily sin counting. It doesn't mean that we sin freely. Actually, the opposite happens. As we fall more and more in love with Jesus, we are motivated to live lives that are worthy of the calling we have received. As you fall in love with Jesus, you'll begin to say, there are just some things that I'm doing right now that don't fit with this life. There are some things that are beneath me because I am a person loved by God, and that action does not represent what God has called me to be. Jesus tells us not to be like the Pharisees. You remember the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees, they, they cleaned the outside of the cup. They cleaned the outside of the dish, but they forgot about the inside because it, all inside was like mess. But all they cared about that it was that it looked right on the outside. I, I want to look moral. I, I want to look holy. I, I want to say the right words. But I really don't want to work on the interior of my life. Discipleship says what matters first is the interior of your life. And out of a changed heart, out of a redeemed heart, your actions will begin to look differently. So don't be like the Pharisees. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. The walls on the outside were sparkling. But inside was death and decay. Discipleship calls us to go beyond moralism, more than simply trying to be good people, to having our hearts shaped by God. Discipleship also calls us to go beyond therapeutic culture. Now, I have to say this morning that this is not an anti-therapy message. Some of my best friends are therapists. That was a joke. (laughs) But this is not an anti-therapy message. I have a therapist, and uh, having a therapist that I meet with regularly is helping me tremendously to grow. I'm able to be the pastor you need me to be in part because of my therapist. But therapeutic culture and discipleship are not interchangeable. They're not one and the same. That's the point of this, 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 this point of the message, that therapeutic culture begins with self, while discipleship begins with God. Discipleship begins by helping us to see that every single one of us, regardless of how educated you are, regardless of who you are, rich or poor, black or white, Asian, Hispanic, Latino, whoever you are, in this room, you stand in need of God's grace. Discipleship is the great equalizer because if you have breath, 
you need discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, people don't mind being labeled weak or sick or bogged down with problems, but nobody under any circumstance wants to be labeled a sinner. What discipleship says is all of us are sinners in need of the grace of God. We will never truly step into discipleship. We'll never join Jesus on the journey to which he is inviting us until we first acknowledge a deep and abiding need for the gospel. Discipleship calls us to bring our whole selves to the altar, giving more and more of ourselves away, learning more and more to trust in Jesus, knowing that Jesus is willing and able to heal us and save us from the sickness that, involve, that invades our life. And that sickness is called sin. Discipleship is not easy, but it's worth it. It's costly, but it's worth it. It won't happen overnight, but it's worth it. And here's the image that I get for most of us when it comes to discipleship. We want to give some of us to God, but there are some parts of us that we'd rather keep to ourselves. It's almost like we're deciding, uh, yep, yeah, I'm going to get in the car for that road trip, but I'm going to let my legs hang out the outside of the car. <laughs> I want to go. I want to be a part of it. I want to know what's going on, but my legs, I need them to stay here. Jesus is calling us today to not just bring a part of ourselves, but our whole selves and allow him to lead us on this path of discipleship. So God calls us beyond moralism. He calls, calls us beyond therapeutic culture, but he also calls us beyond this thing called deism, which may be the most dangerous of them all. Deism accepts that there is the existence of a creator but it rejects any belief in any sort of supernatural God who interacts with humankind. The idea of God knowing us personally, the idea of God molding us and shaping us and growing us is absurd to those who call themselves deists. Any idea of a physically embodied faith, a faith that is lived out, makes no sense to them. In their eyes, faith is all about what you believe. It's about doctrine and it's about ideas and concepts, and it's about quotes from dead white men. But discipleship counters this kind of thinking sharply and says that what we do with our bodies is actually one of the most revealing tests of what we actually believe. And so for that reason, discipleship challenges us to move beyond grand statements, and it holds up a mirror to the way we live our lives every day. Discipleship is not only concerned with biblical thought and theological truth, but also with how we live out our truth in the world. Discipleship calls us to be more intentional and more discerning about our daily habits and our daily practices. So we begin to ask a certain kind of question about our lives when we are disciples of Jesus. We begin to look at the things that we do, our habits and our practice, and we ask ourselves, what kind of person am I becoming as a result of this practice? We ask ourselves, if this habit has its way with me, what kind of person will I be in the end? And when we begin to look at our practices and our habits in that way, we begin to categorize our life in a couple ways. We begin to ask, is this practice formational? Is it developing in me a love for Jesus and an obedience towards Jesus? Or is this practice deforming? Is it shaping in me a heart for things 
that are in opposition to Jesus and his kingdom. I, I used to think of the boogeyman a lot when I was a kid. I used to think of the, the devil was always like in a closet or around a corner looking to jump out at me and just scare me with that toothpick, that, that, that pitchfork. <laughs> Not a toothpick. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's a pitchfork, a little bigger than a toothpick. I know now that the enemy of our souls that need a pitchfork, all he needs is our practices. And we, if we're not careful, will slowly drift away from a life that is causing us to fall in love with Jesus. And one day we will look up and we will be far from the God that we know and love. It doesn't happen in a moment, it's a slow drift. And I don't say that to scare anybody. I say that because as your pastor, I know how easy it is for a person to look up one day and be a very different person than the person they intended to be. So discipleship calls us to not just see spiritual disciplines as okay, but to see spiritual disciplines as critical for our lives. Perhaps you are called today to pick up a few disciplines of abstinence. That's, that's where you step away from certain things for a season so that God may take up residence more freely in your life. That, that's fasting, that's solitude, that's silence, that's celibacy from many different kinds of things beyond just sex. Perhaps God is calling you today to take up a discipline of abstinence. Or perhaps God is calling you to take up a discipline of engagement. That's where you add something to your life so that you might grow in your relationship with God. That's studying God's word. That's worship through singing. That's celebration. That's acts of service. That's fellowship with other believers. Richard Foster, the, the, the author of Celebration of Discipline, said that spiritual disciplines face us before, place us before God so that in that place, and in that posture, God can transform us. These, these disciplines are a way of offering our body to God with open arms, saying, Lord, have your way. Deism says that God's not near us, so it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. Discipleship says, I give myself away so that God can use me. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to a road trip, a journey of any sort, you can dream about it for years. You can do all the research. You, you can pack the bags. You can load the bags into a vehicle. You can even take a selfie in the, in, in the driveway with all the stuff packed. But if you never actually get in the car, you're not going anywhere. It doesn't count as a road trip. Jesus is standing today, and Jesus is calling out to us, hey, get in the car. Let's go for a ride. I want to take you somewhere. Hey, come, follow after me, and I will teach you how to be fishers of people. It's the same call that two sets of brothers received on the Sea of Galilee in Matthew chapter 4. And when we join with Jesus on this journey, we're actually saying yes to a life-altering ride, a ride where we are transformed all along the journey. 
and a ride where we get the privilege of also inviting others to the journey. I'm excited for the road ahead. So over the next several weeks, we're going to look at a couple different aspects of road trips. Next week, we're looking at maps, apps, and road signs. Where we ask you, how do you decide where to go on this journey? How do you discern? How do you make decisions? And then the following week, we're going to look at road dogs. Who are you riding with? Who are you inviting on your road trip? The following weeks, we're looking at roadblocks and flat tires. What do you do with disappointments and interruptions and stuff getting in your way? Week five, we're looking at gas stations and rest stops. How do you care for yourself on the journey? How do you make sure that you're not falling asleep at the wheel? And then in the final week, we ask the question, are we there yet? How do we live in light of the destination? Discipleship is about the journey and the destination. And having a clear sense of the destination can transform the journey for all of us. So I'm excited that over the next few weeks we get to talk about the thing I love to talk about more than anything else, following Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you have called us, each of us by name, to come and follow after you. Father, you've promised that you would transform us, you would make us over, you would change us. And you have even given us the privilege of inviting others on the ride as well. And so, God, I pray now that you would continue the work of preparing our hearts and minds to hear from you in this way. God, I believe that you have called us first to follow after you as your disciples, but you also call us to follow after you and make disciples. And God, if you're not fishing, you're not following If you're not making disciples, you have to wrestle, am I really a disciple myself? So I pray for every brother and sister in this room that they would be growing in confidence, not of themselves, but confidence in you. That if you've called us to make disciples, that you're also preparing us to make disciples. God, I thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. I thank you that you've not left us up to our own devices. So hear our prayer today, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.